Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Dave McKechnie, standing in this week for Chris Dooley. Between 2015 and 2017, a wave of terror attacks carried out by Islamic extremists swept across Europe, with France in particular in the firing line. This week, France is reliving one of the first and most notorious of those attacks, the Charlie Hebdo massacre of January 2015. A gunman's triumphant cry. We've avenged the Prophet Muhammad, heard clearly in dramatic new footage showing Islamist militants... Brothers Sharif and Saeed Kouachi raided the office of the satirical newspaper Charlie Hebdo in Paris. By the time they'd stopped, at least 12 people were dead. Many others were seriously injured. There was more bloodshed in the following days before the crisis ended. The Kouachis and another jihadist were eventually killed by police in two locations on the afternoon of January the 9th, 2015. Now, five and a half years later, the trial of 14 alleged accomplices is taking place in Paris. Our Paris correspondent, Lara Marlowe, reported on those attacks in 2015, and she's now covering the trial. Lara, first of all, can you take us back to 2015 and tell us a bit more about Charlie Hebdo and why it became the target for this attack? Um, I suppose that there's nothing really in Ireland as, as irreverent as Charlie Hebdo. Maybe maybe Phoenix magazine would come close. It is a, a, a cartoon magazine, uh, no photographs, just, just cartoons. The editor-in-chief, uh, Reese went through the history of the magazine in court yesterday, and so, so it's all very fresh in my mind. Um, he said that during the 1990s, their main problem was with the Catholic Church, uh, and they were sued by by very you know fundamentalist Catholic groups for blasphemy. They they've always been just extremely rude, irreverent, almost semi pornographic on occasion. In two thousand and six, when Jyllands Posten, the Danish newspaper, published those cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad, uh, which caused Muslims all over the world uh, a lot of anger. People were, were burning things. And the director of Yellen's Poston was sacked over, over his decision to publish the cartoons. And uh, Reese talked about the, the, the staff meeting where they said, you know, this is outrageous, a, a, a magazine director. And there were a couple of, of um, men fired in France as well for publishing them. They said, you know, we, we've got to publish this. You know, this is all about liberty. And so they, they did a uh, Cabu, who's one of the, the um, cartoonists who was murdered on January 7th of 2015, uh, did a cover drawing which showed the prophet with his head in his hands and, you know, looking sort of desperate. And, he, and the, the, the blurb coming out of his mouth says, it's, it's so hard to be loved by fools. And then on the two inside pages, they reprinted all the Danish cartoons. Oh, quite small, actually. They, they showed those again on the screen yesterday. Um, and after that, a Muslim group in France sued them for blasphemy. Again, Charlie Hebdo won in court. Um, things seemed to be quiet. Uh, they had threats at the time, but things seemed to be quieting down. And then in 2011, they decided to do a special issue, which would be fictionally be edited by the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, and, you know, Reese, the, the editor in chief, said yesterday that it was it was kind of it was funny and it was light. It wasn't you know, it wasn't really anti-Muslim, although they were often accused of being Islamophobic. And after, so shortly after they published that edition, 
their um, offices were were burned. There was an arson attack against their offices, and they had to move locations. They moved to the the place where um, they were when the massacre happened. And they had they had uh, permanent police protection. And then in 2013, Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula they issued a fatwa for Stéphane Charbonnier, who was the uh, director of the of the magazine. He was also a cartoonist himself. He went by the name Charb. And then nothing really happened again. 2014 in until January uh, of 2015. So on that day in January 2015, these two brothers, Sharif and Saeed Kouachi, came to the Charlie Hebdo office. The details are distressing, but can you remind us of some of what unfolded that day? First, they killed a maintenance man on the ground floor. Uh, His wife testified this week and she said that because he was not a journalist, everyone had forgotten him. She was very sad about that. Then they they forced uh, Coco, who was a cartoonist or still is a cartoonist for Charlie Hebdo. Uh, Her real name is Corinne Ray. She'd gone out to smoke a cigarette and they forced her at gunpoint to enter the code for the door um, on the second floor to the to the newspaper, and she said she felt terribly, terribly guilty and saw a psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist finally convinced her that the only guilty parties were um, the Kawachi brothers, not not her. Um, she she said she was just so terrified that she couldn't think, and and she kept thinking about her little girl, and and you know how her little girl would be motherless if if she was killed, and so on. But um, she let them in. Um, so and then the rest, you know, we know they they went into the conference room where the weekly conference was taking place, uh, and started. They didn't fire. Um, uh, you know, like with a with a Kalashnikov, you can you can just fire a sort of rafale, uh, and I don't know how you say it in English. Uh, you can fire a continuous, put it on automatic fire. But they 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 took individual shots uh, at each journalist. They they just picked them off one by one. The whole attack lasted one minute and forty nine seconds. Uh, which was the title of a book by by Reese afterwards he was his shoulder was shattered in the attack uh, but to the survivors who testified yesterday in very dramatic testimony it seemed like an eternity there are certainly some searing images of that day i remember particularly the image of the policeman being shot in cold blood on the pavement you were in paris and reporting for the irish times how do you remember the day Mm, mm. I was actually um, running some errands when I got a call from the foreign desk in Dublin um, from Evelyn Bracken saying there's something something has happened at Charlie Hebdo and I actually as I was going out the door I had seen um, a, a sort of news flash on the Figaro website that said um, there had been a shooting incident and and there might be, but it, it I think it talked about a few w- wounded or something. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll check it out. You know, it didn't sound very serious. And then sure enough, I, w- I, w- I was um, buying groceries for lunch with an Irish diplomat. And uh, Evelyn, when Evelyn rang me and she said, go there immediately. So I did. I just dropped everything and took the metro and went to the, the street and it was. I remember, in particular, a, a close friend of mine from Le Monde who was there, and she she knew several of the cartoonists, and she was just in shock. Every all the journalists were there, and there was this incredible silence. And there was a police barricade, a police line, and there were already. And this was just 
less than an hour really after it had happened, there were um, piles of flowers and candles and, you know, little plush toys, all the, these sort of uh, makeshift almost altars that we got very, very used to seeing over those three years from 2015 to 2018, at the scenes of all of these um, jihadist attacks. And um, it was just the, the country was absolutely in shock. We've mentioned the two main perpetrators, the Kouachi brothers. There was another jihadist, Amadi Koulibaly, involved, and he was also shot dead by police a few days later. What do we know about these three men? We know an awful lot about them. Um, All of them had been in prison. In fact, uh, Koulibaly, who was African from Malian origin, had become friends with Sherif uh, Kouachi in, in, in uh, Fleury-Mérogis, which is the largest prison in Europe. Um, the Kouachi brothers were the sons of Algerian immigrants. Their father uh, was violent, um, and they were their mother died, and then they went, they were sent to a foster home. Um, they they were very very anti French, even though they were French citizens, even though they were born here. I remember reading um, an, an article, an interview with their sister, who said that they forbade her from going out with Frenchmen. And they talked about le safran, les safran, which is um, a slang for French, français backwards. And they, they would speak very negatively of, you know, safran. The older brother was Saïd. The younger brother, um, Sherif, was the, was the sort of the boss. He was the one in charge. Um, Saïd was very sickly and had problems. Um, both of them married. Uh, they got involved. With, it was, in, I guess, in prison that they became radicalized, like most of, of the Islamists in, in France. One of them went to Yemen and trained with Al-Qaeda in Yemen, uh, which was why they claimed their attack for, for Al-Qaeda in Yemen. And remember, it was Al-Qaeda in Yemen which had condemned Sharb to death. Um, Sherif was involved in a network that was sending jihadists to fight in Iraq, to fight the Americans in Iraq. And he was in prison for that when he met Koulibaly. Koulibaly uh, was from a Paris suburb called Grigny, which is, is kind of a pretty rough suburb. I've, I've been there and it's not the kind of place you'd want to go after dark, certainly. Um, he started as a petty criminal, you know, doing armed robbery and, and drug dealing and that sort of thing. And then, like the others, uh, was radicalized in prison. In fact, he, in a, a second prison term, uh, after he'd known um, the, the Kouachis, he, they called it the laundry sect because he was working in the laundry, prison laundry, and he preached to the other prisoners who were working there while they were, were preaching. So they, they adopted a very radical form of Islam. Koulibaly was put in touch with Islamic State, um, or ISIS, if you prefer, and we've we've actually found out uh, he was um, ordered to it, well, the, his target of the Jewish supermarket, the Hypercacher, was chosen by um, a guy known as Abu Muthana, uh, who was actually a high-ranking official in Islamic State. And I mean, one of the striking—I remember at the time everyone was very puzzled because they said, "Well, how come?" You know, the Kouachis said they acted for al-Qaeda in Yemen and Koulibaly uh, was acting for um, ISIS. 
And it just sort of didn't make sense to people, but, you know, because those two groups were fighting each other in Syria. But here in France, it didn't bother the, the protagonist in the least. I mean, they were just, they believed in Islam and the caliphate and, and, and whatever. And the, the Kouachis were just a, a slightly um, less up-to-date version of jihadism, I suppose. The hunt for the men ended with more bloodshed in a supermarket two days later on January the 9th. What happened on that day? Well, already on on the eighth, on the second day, um, Koulibaly had assassinated a, a West Indian policewoman, and the Kawashi brothers were on the run. And they were known to be north of Paris. They were in the forest of Compiègne. Um, so everyone was sort of watching out for them, terrified. And then it all came to a head on the ninth when, um, first of all, the the Kawashi brothers. Uh, went to a printing plant at a place called uh, Damartin, I believe it was called, and and they um, held the first held the owner of the printing plant at gunpoint. One employee hid in a cupboard under a sink. Um, the employee of the printing plant was freed after a few hours. They told him they didn't hurt civilians, which was kind of absurd because they just killed um, 11 civilians the, you know, two days earlier. But anyway, so they were holed up in the printing plant. And then um, around lunchtime, suddenly we hear that there's been a hostage taking in this supermarket at the Porte de Vincennes in the east of Paris. Uh, and again, nobody knew if if these were connected, although it became, it, it was known very quickly after that. Koulibaly uh, used the cell phones of his hostages to ring um, the news uh, BFM, which was the, the 24-7 news channel. We are the defenders of the Prophet. I, Sharif Kouaishi, was sent by Al-Qaeda in Yemen. I went to Yemen and Anwar al-Awlaki financed me. And he told them he was with the Kawashi brothers and that they were they were doing this together. Um, although, again, he, he claimed to be acting on behalf of ISIS. The moment he broke into the, he burst into the supermarket, he shot dead uh, four people. I mean, and they were shot dead because they were Jewish. Um, one of them tried to take his gun away from him. Um, the others he just shot, you know, gratuitously. Um, and this, then this hostage uh, situation went on for four hours. Um, and while, well, there were, in a, in a sense, there were two hostage situations. There were the, the, the Kouachi brothers who were in this um, printing plant that was surrounded by gendarmes north of Paris and Koulibaly inside the supermarket. And he was watching the television coverage, the live television coverage the whole time. And the, the police were very afraid that he, there were over, I think it was 26 hostages in the supermarket. And they were afraid that if um, the Kawachi brothers were killed, that he would immediately start killing his 26 hostages. So they decided that whatever happened, as soon as the Kawachi brothers uh, were killed, they would have to to disable uh, Koulibaly. And that's exactly what happened. About 5 p.m. after a very, very tense four hours, uh, the Kawachis uh, burst out of the printing plant firing their guns. It was kind of like those old cowboy movies, you know, where you would see the, the, the cowboy in the desperate situation come out firing um, with, with, with both guns. It was, it was really like that. And firing at the gendarmes, they knew they would be killed, of course, and they were shot dead. And within minutes, I think it was two or three minutes, 
the police uh, stormed the supermarket where Koulibaly was with his hostages and shot him dead. And fortunately, he was not able to kill any more people, which which was pretty amazing because that was that was the the danger. And one by one, the hostages filed out of the supermarket. And um, I've read accounts of what was going on at the Elysee. François Hollande and and um, the Interior Minister were watching this live on television, and they were counting the hostages as they filed out of the supermarket. You know, shaking in fear with their hands over their heads, and and uh, it was very very dramatic and and. Sure enough, all 26 of them got out alive. Now, jumping forward to this week and the trial of 14 people for involvement in those events, three of whom are being tried in absentia, what sort of crimes do they stand accused of? It ranges from very, um, you know, small things like having rented a car to them or something like that, or or, uh, some of them were accused of selling guns. One of them, I think, rented an apartment to them. Basically, they're accused of providing logistical support. Uh, there's only one of them who seems to really have a strong connection with the attacks, and he was um, he he went to Brussels with Koulibaly to buy the weapons. He risks life imprisonment, um, but the. All of and, the, and also Belusen, Mohammed Belusen, who was who's believed dead in Syria, uh, also risked life imprisonment uh, for um, aiding and abetting these attacks. All of the other defendants risk up to twenty years in prison. Uh, but I was looking at them in in court yesterday, and one thing that really struck me is that I, I think there's one or two of the fourteen who are not uh, North African Arabs or Muslims. But just looking at them, you could see that they were all ethnic minorities. And one has this this very unpleasant sense of, of this huge chasm in French society between North African Arabs and white French people. Um, and it's not... Eh, it's not a civil war. You couldn't say that, but there is this this very deep tension, and certainly all of the all of the opinion polls have shown uh, that a much higher percentage of French Muslims um, said they understood the attack on Charlie Hebdo, while the vast majority of of non-Muslim French people totally condemn it. One doesn't feel this is really a trial for the purpose, oh it is obviously for the purpose of establishing complicity and logistical support. Um, I have no idea how many of them will be convicted, but it's almost a, a cathartic process. It's like France has to get this out of the, its system. Um, and they're going into incredible detail about, you know, the, the character of the victims, the characters of the accused, um, all of the political and philosophical questions surrounding these attacks. Um, so it's, it's a very long, painstaking process. Yesterday in court, you heard some powerful testimony from some of the survivors, but not all of the survivors who are meant to appear showed up. Isn't that right? Uh, yes, there were. Well, there were supposed to be six people actually um, testify yesterday, and three of them uh, begged off, just couldn't face it, and I didn't want to come to court, uh, including a very, quite well-known, famous journalist now called Philippe Lanson, whose jaw was blown off, and he, he wrote a book uh, which has won two literary awards, 500-page 
book about about the attack. Um, the three who came were, were all very, very different from each other. The, the youngest one uh, was the webmaster for Charlie Hebdo. Um, his name is Simon Fieschi. And he was very touching because he was he was quite humble. And he said, I don't want to give the accomplices of the killers the satisfaction of seeing my grief. Uh, I just want to tell you what a, a, a war weapon does to a human body. And he, even though he's 32 years old, he kind of hobbled in. His, his body has obviously been racked by the, the bullet. He was hit in the neck. Um, it damaged his spinal cord. He was completely paralyzed for two or three years after the attack. And he said that every movement he makes is is the result of a huge effort and, and creates uh, incredible fatigue in him. And he's obviously really struggled. He can't work. Um, and and he, he, he said, the bullet hit me, but it didn't destroy me. And, and that was seen as sort of true of, of, you know, Charlie Hebdo itself. They all emphasized how glad they were that the magazine had survived. Um, the second witness yesterday um, was a man called Fabrice Nicolino, who's the, the um, um, ecology correspondent for, for the paper. And he'd actually survived a previous Islamist attack in 1985. He was at a Jewish film festival when a, a man left a bomb in the cinema and he'd been badly wounded then. And he, he said maybe that saved him because the others all had the reflex of jumping up to their feet when the, when the, uh, when the Kawashi brothers burst into the conference room. And they were shot in the chest and died, whereas he had the reflex of throwing himself to the floor. And he nonetheless took three bullets uh, and was with two in the legs. And he also walked with a crutch. Uh, Nicolino had a lot more, seemed to have more anger in him than Fieschi. Um, he was very, the, what he was very angry toward uh, Islamic radicals. Uh, he talked about them being totalitarians, but he was almost as angry at French intellectuals who he accused of preparing the, the ground psychologically for the attack by calling Charlie Hebdo a racist and Islamophobic newspaper. Um, this is common, um, commonly heard from its critics. And he was very, very angry. He said, I will never, 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 I, I, he said never four times, forgive them. So these people to this day are not leading normal lives. Uh, Reese has a police escort all the time. And, um, you know, you, it was kind of impressive to see these witnesses arriving with bodyguards uh, in the courthouse, which is also a fortress. Um, I think I counted at least four or five uh, sort of barriers to get into the courthouse. Uh, I went through two or three metal detectors, including the the one that that sort of wand, you know, that they run up and down you, you know, to make sure you haven't got anything. And um, it's it, it's uh, very much, you know, you 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 know that the threat is not over. There were dozens of uh, CRS riot police vans surrounding the courthouse. Uh, riot police everywhere wearing um, bulletproof vest and and uh, a lot of them wearing balaclavas. Um, so it, it's in a way it's it's a throwback to this very, very tense period. I, obviously the authorities are afraid that that um, Islam is that Islamic state or, or some group or maybe even just um, individuals might try to do something during the trial to show that they're still around. 
yeah, despite, I suppose, the, the pressure that obviously, uh, as you described there, Charlie Hebdo staff are under, they d- did decide to uh, reprint the offending cartoons last week and there were a number of protests around the world as a result of that. What did they say about that decision? Rhys said that he um, he was asked actually by the Charlie Hebdo's lawyer, uh, you know, don't in view of the catastrophe that this has caused and the loss of life, you know, aren't you sorry that you decided to to um, publish those cartoons in the first place? And why did you republish them? And he portrayed it as a question of liberty or death in a way and, and said that, no, he didn't, he didn't regret publishing them, that it wasn't really a choice, that, that life equals liberty and liberty equals life and that if you're going to live as a slave in fear, there's no point being alive. And, and um, so that he, he said he had to publish them and it was, he was faced with a decision after the attack of do we start publishing again or not? And he said he knew if they didn't start quickly um, that they would never start again. And he said that even though a lot there were quite a few wounded and they were exhausted and obviously grieving, that they had they had to bring the magazine out again very quickly, uh, which is what they did. And I thought that that part of his testimony was quite moving because it was about it was about journalism too, and it was about this determination. Uh, to just keep going no matter what. Uh, finally, Lara, it certainly felt from the outside, looking back at those events um, in in uh, 2015, uh, there were obviously a number of attacks followed that. Um, and it did feel as though it, just looking from the outside that that per- period of terror in France would never end. Is that how it felt when you were there? And and. And why did it end? And, and how did it end? I'm touching my wooden desk as I say this. I, I, I hope it has ended, Dave, but I'm not really certain it has. Um, if you look back, these, I mean, we heard from a witness yesterday who, who was in a bombing in 1985. I think that as long as there is unrest in the Middle East, as long as there is conflict between Muslims and the West, we will from time to time see these attacks. Um, from 2015 until 2018, they were on a horrendous scale. And yes, it did feel a bit as if it would never end. Um, I, I, for a long time, you know, when I would go out to dinner or that sort of thing, or I, I would feel a bit nervous. I mean, now we, COVID has kind of, in a sense, uh, blurred or wiped out the, the fears of terrorist attacks. But um, you just, you never knew when it was going to happen. And I never went anywhere without my phone. I never turned my phone off. Um, when I saw large groups of people anywhere, it made me feel really uneasy because I thought they were a potential target. Um, it, it was it was not a, a happy period. Um, and now is not a, ha- a happy period either. I mean, between, between the, uh, France is, well, Macron, uh, President Emmanuel Macron, thinks that fears that France is kind of disintegrating under the weight of so many subsequent crises. Um, first, there was the the economic crash in two thousand and eight, and then we had this long spate of of terrorist attacks, and then there was um, the Gilets Jaunes revolt, and then there was the there were two months of transport strikes last winter, and now the the COVID pandemic, and you do sort of wonder, well, what will be next? Um, but despite all of this, I must say that living in France is still 
uh, can be a very pleasant thing. That's good to hear. Lara, thanks a lot for talking to us today. That's all for this week. For more on this and other stories, go to irishtimes.com.